Hello everybody, Ash here from Ear Read This. Following on from our episode on the Black Arrow, today I am joined once again by Jeremy Hodges to talk a little more about Robert Louis Stevenson. Jeremy is the author of three books on Stevenson, including the terrific biography focusing on the author's time in Edinburgh, Lamplit Vicious Fairyland, which is available to read in full and for free online. I've left a link to it in the episode description box below. Jeremy's most recent book is Mrs. Jekyll and Cousin Hyde, which you'll also find linked below, a fascinating study of Stevenson's cousin and fellow writer, Catherine de Matos. Just a quick note before I hand over to Jeremy, the Bob mentioned is Catherine's brother, Stevenson's often wayward cousin Bob. And the Tom mentioned is Jeremy's son, who runs my favourite bookshop here in Edinburgh, Type Wronger Books. I started off my conversation with Jeremy by asking where it all began for him and writing about Stevenson. I have a, a, a long and sad history of Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first one, I decided that I was going to write the definitive biography of Stevenson. Okay. Which sounds very arrogant, but there again, if you're not going to write something that's bigger and better than the others, why bother? Exactly, yeah. The, the, the direction of Stevenson biographies at the time was getting more and more and more towards the South Seas because this was the exciting, colourful thing. So they were mm. writing more and more and more about Lewis on Samoa and being involved in uh, the civil war between the sort of various Samoans and people having their heads cut off, and which was all very exciting. But I was more interested in sort of, you know, his early years before he became a hopeless invalid and yeah. all the things that formed him. Also, just from a practical point of view, I live in Falkirk, so going into Edinburgh is nice and easy. And I could walk around all the places in Edinburgh that Stevens, you know, all, all his old haunts, all the, you know, all the places he would go, most of which are still there, marvellously. Most of the new town is still there, and a lot of the old towns. So you, you can still walk around it it's, um, and be haunted by the ghost of Stevenson wherever you go. And I started digging back, and the earliest biography by his cousin Graham Balfour, which was authorised by Stevenson's wife. So a lot of people are disparaging of it because they think, you know, it was it was censored. It's, it's actually a lot more interesting stuff in it than than some of the, the the later ones. But there was there was stuff in the earlier ones that seemed to get forgotten in the later ones, and there was stuff in Stevenson's own writing about himself that never seemed to find its way into biographies, and there was stuff in the letters um, that never seemed to find its way in. And odd other bits and pieces that that I could dig out. It was it was just a very exciting piece of detective work, piecing together his early life. And the way I did it, which probably helped bugger it up for publication, was I thought I'd do it in flashback because mm. I didn't want to start off. Most biographies start off with somebody's ancestors and you have to plow through a whole load of names and God knows what for at least a chapter before they're even born. And... Uh, <laughs> So I didn't do that. I started it with his death in Samoa and him sort of falling and losing consciousness and then flashing mm. back from there to Edinburgh and him walking through the town on a rainy night, heading off to um, the lamplit, vicious fairyland of Edinburgh, which is what he called the disreputable side of it. Pubs, the brothels, the, the whatever that he used to sneak out to. The Hyde side. And the, the, the book is called Lamplit, Vicious Fairyland. I called it that because he... Wrote, wrote, he used that phrase in a letter to his friend Sidney Colvin and Colvin edited the first collection of Stevenson's letters and he put that letter in but he took out the word vicious which of course completely changed the sense because it, it took out all the vice you know Colvin would do this thing with a blue pencil without any qualm you know he, he was Stevenson's bowdler so I thought part of my, my mission was to remove the blue pencil and to stick back you know the stuff that happened I was interested in his friends and uh, what happened to them. Walter Ferrier, who drank himself to death at the age of 33. I mean, his friends did not behave like good Victorian respectable people. Cousin Bob was a walking disaster area as far as, as, far as his parents or aunts or uncles were concerned because he, he would go around, you know, dressed in a most eccentric style. He was determined he wanted to be an artist. Um, instead of going off and designing lighthouses like he should, he was going off painting naked ladies. <laughs> and at the time, uh, the, the School of Art in Edinburgh was fighting a running battle with the National Society for the Supp Suppression of Licentiousness, who had a campaign going to stop 
life classes in art schools because they thought actually having naked women or naked men and young people um, sketching them in the buff was corrupting to public morals. And you had all kinds of crazy stuff like this going on. If you were free thinking and if you uh, wanted to have a good time, Edinburgh was a very repressive place to be. The reason that Stevenson ended up having a nervous breakdown was largely because of his parents, but also because of respectable Edinburgh. What's he called? Mrs. Grundy, um, mm. who was the sort of, you know, the, the, the mythological matron in charge of the nation's morals, who went around disapproving of everything and, and being shocked sometimes at the most silly things. Now, th mm. this, this was in the age when allegedly pianos had knickerbockers put on their legs, grand pianos, because otherwise they were indecent, you know. <laughs> I dug out all the stuff about his escapades with Bob and the, the shabines that they went to, the brothels that they went to, the girls that they met, all the kind of characters that, um, that he would meet, and stuck that into the book. And the book sort of went through his whole life, really until he left Edinburgh for the last time, mm. having begun with his death. I end it with his departure from Edinburgh because Edinburgh was Edinburgh and Scotland was really the sort of focus of what I was doing. And by doing it in flashback, you'd have flashbacks from Samoa to Edinburgh uh, at the start of each chapter. So it was actually sort of filling you in about his later life, just the sort of thumbnail sketch of his later life in Samoa at the start before you got Edinburgh in detail. I thought that would work because people were used to films with flashbacks and all the rest, but I'm not sure if people quite followed it. Anyhow, the, 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 the whole thing ended up at 198,000 words, which was the same size as Frank McGlynn's. He was writing one. And also, just as my book was being finished, Claire Harmon's book was coming out as well. And that, again, was another 200,000-word job. And I think nobody was interested in yet another 200,000-word job on Stevenson at the same time if they were going to be up against HarperCollins and their whole marketing machine. So couldn't get it published anywhere. And fortunately, Napier Uni had started up a Robert Louis Stevenson website and they'd appealed for essays or you know, bits and pieces about Stevenson that they could you know, host on the website. And so I got in touch with Professor Linda Dryden and said, how do you fancy a 200,000-word biography? <laughs> I said, to make it more digestible, we could do it like Stevenson did his books, and we could serialise it. And it's got 26 chapters. If we put one chapter every fortnight up on the website, then it would go for a year before you got the entire biography up there. So we did it like that. And if anybody's interested, it's still on the Robert Louis Stevenson website. If you look around at the bottom for the link, Lampet Vicious Fairyland, you can read the whole damn lot if you feel so inclined, online and free of charge. I'm wonderful for writing stuff free of charge. <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards, you wrote a, another book on the, his period in Paris. Yes, that was, um, we went to Paris uh, for New Year. Tom had a most ridiculous little garret thing there that he was living in, sort of one room job with a, you know, a, a, a little hot place in the corner to cook on and all the rest. And we stayed with him and he, he slept between two chairs, I think, and we slept on the bed. And we had a lovely time for a couple of days, just eating a lot of stuff and drinking a lot of stuff. And after about the third bottle of claret, he said, why don't you self-publish? Because he was uh, then linked up with Shakespeare and Company in Paris. And he said, they will sell self-published books. And he said, you could, you could bring it out yourself and, and sell it through Shakespeare and Company. And I said, well, I'm really not going to go into self-publishing 200,000 words um, because it's going to be an enormous fat volume and trying to get that, you know, just the, the costs of printing that were going to be difficult. I said, well, if it's going to be written for Shakespeare and Company, then what Shakespeare and Company is about is A, Paris, and B, Bohemia, Bohemian Paris. I mean, all the starry-eyed people who go into Shakespeare and Company fancy themselves living the Bohemian lifestyle. They're aspiring authors. They, you know, they're leading the literary life. And it's great. You enjoy doing that. That's why you go to Shakespeare and Company. So I thought I'd write a little book that would combine uh, Stevenson in Paris and the whole bohemian thing. And his time in Paris was the most bohemian thing because he was here with Cousin Bob most of the time. And all these American artists that he met, and they all lived the most uh, footloose lifestyle, living in garrets and having uh, grisettes who were young ladies who would uh, cook and clean for them and also pose as models for them and sometimes share their bed as well. They were sort of multi-purpose young ladies, but they were very independent sort of blue stocking type young ladies as well, They're intelligent artistic women as well. So that part of Stevenson's life 
wasn't done all that deeply in the biographies. His, his own writings about it, also if you dug them out, um, were very interesting um, if you knew where to look. So it was basically just assembling all the sort of interesting bits and pieces from letters and Stevenson's own writings and other bits and pieces and putting them, putting them together into a book, um, including I discovered in um, one of these American magazines that Lewis wrote for eventually as well, some woman had been to Gracieux Loing, the, the village in um, the forest of Fontainebleau, where the artists used to disappear in the summer, um, including Fanny Osborne as well. She had visited and she'd written this very satirical thing about all these artists and how they were, you know, sitting around drinking wine, playing the piano, having huge arguments with each other about everything under the sun. And she also, uh, she went with a, an artist with her and did all these little cartoon sketches. And of course, these being well out of copyright, I lifted them and stuck them in the book as well. So I, I actually managed to get some illustrations too. And it made 80 pages and uh, it was quite a jolly read. And I got the one picture of Stevenson in his bohemian period wearing a Turkish cap, smoking cap, because this is what bohemian people wore in those days. And I stuck that on the cover and I called it Stevenson's Paris, Bohemian Days Before Treasure Island, which I thought was about, you know, uh, you know, it does what it says on the tin. And uh, got them printed in Scotland, went over to Paris again with 250 copies in a suitcase, handed them to Tom as my literary agent. Yeah. In the course of the summer, he managed to dispose of just about all of them. Because wow. of thin volume, if you put thin volumes on a shelf, they disappear. You can't, you know, you've got this little tiny spine, you won't notice them. Mm. If your son works in the bookshop, and keeps grabbing a handful of them and sticking one on the table face up, and it says Stevenson's Paris, you sell quite a few. So that, you know, that, that was my big success uh, book sales-wise. You, you sell it through a bookshop where your son is, uh, has control of which books get stuck on the table. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that photo. I love the, the, the combination of that hat and that very, very solemn expression. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that 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 captures is is uh, is silliness that we were talking about. Yeah. Um yeah. earlier. Um so coming to Mrs. Jekyll and Cousin Hyde, it's obviously as the title implies to do with the origin of Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. Um one thing I really wanted to ask you about was uh, brownies in his essay on dreams. Stevenson talks about his here these brownies appearing to him, these sort of fairy-like creatures, and basically giving him his his ideas or, or building the sort of stuff of his stories. And I've always wanted to ask someone who knows more than me how how earnest is he being um, when he talks about uh, the the brownies? Well, he does. He 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 did dream stuff, mm. and the, the 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 dream stuff then you know would would inspire. Uh, the waking stuff. He dreamt two scenes of Jekyll and Hyde, famously. One where um, Utterson and Enfield see Jekyll at the window mm. and his face is completely a picture of ghastly horror because he knows he's just about to turn into Mr. Hyde. They sort of misread it and think, you know, somebody must be blackmailing him or something terrible is happening to him. God, I forget the other scene, but two scenes in Jekyll and Hyde he dreamt. And this is what he meant by his brownies bringing them to him in, in, in dreams. The interesting thing, though, is he was, uh, when he had these dreams, he was on a heavy daily diet of reading Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> um, because his cousin Catherine, who was Bob's sister, had come to stay with them. Her background, uh, she'd had a very unhappy marriage to a guy called Sidney Damasos, who was uh, not a nice bloke at all, really, and had endless affairs with other women, um, and sponged off her. And eventually she left him with Stevenson's help. But she came to uh, stay at Bournemouth because she'd been with Stevenson and Fanny to see Thomas Hardy down in the West Country. They'd been on a, a literary pilgrimage to see him. And Stevenson not being in good health, Catherine went along as well, both to meet Hardy and to be of assistance if Stevenson took ill in the hotel, which he did. He had a horrific hemorrhage, nearly died, had to stay in the hotel. Um, this was after they'd seen Hardy. Had to stay in the hotel for a fortnight before he was well enough to travel back to Bournemouth. Jeez. And Catherine then stayed at Bournemouth to uh, look after him. Um, having gone through all this, when Fanny got back to Bournemouth, she immediately took ill. She had these illnesses on a regular basis and went to a bed. So Catherine was left looking after Lewis. And the, one of the things that they both enjoyed was Gothic horror. And so she sat and read everything they'd got by Edgar Allan Poe to Stevenson. 
And uh, of course, some of it is pretty scary, you know, pit the pendulum and all, all, all this kind of thing. So I'm not surprised that after all this, when Stevenson went to bed, he would dream horror as well because, he, you know, he'd be yeah. pumped into him uh, during the day. Really, what I was interested in was Catherine because mm. she is a very sort of shadowy character on the edge of Stevenson biographies. She doesn't get written about very much. And she was Bob's sister, Bob's younger sister, kid sister. And she was, have every reason to believe, Stevenson's first childhood sweetheart when they were about 11 or 12, something like that. Although Stevenson got over it quite quickly, I think Catherine sort of carried the candle for him for the rest of her life. But she, she didn't figure all that large in the biographies. And yet what stunned me, or always puzzled me, was the dedication to Jekyll and Hyde. And there's so many people he could have dedicated it to, but he didn't. He dedicated it to Catherine mm. with this beautiful little poem at the start, which doesn't seem a bit like a gothic horror story. Bells upon the city are ringing in the night. High above the gardens are the houses full of light. On the heathy pentlands, the warps are flying free. And the bloom is growing bonny in the north country. We canny break the bonds that God decrees to bind. Still will we be the children of the heather and the wind, far away from home. Oh, it's still for you and me that the broom is blowing bonny in the North Country. And that's recalling his childhood with Catherine. And it's obviously very fond, very affectionate, very emotional. And it was because of her help and her influence. She was at Bournemouth when he had the dream and when he wrote the whole damn thing in three days. 30,000 words in three days. You try doing that, Jesus. How's he, how, how's he do that? Insane. Not only that, she was there when he read it out or read bits of it out. And Fanny immediately took exception with it and said, you can't publish that. And we don't know exactly why she objected, but probably because bits of it were indecent, because it would have said why Dr. Jekyll wanted to become Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Which is, which is the question which is discreetly avoided in the version that we know. And so Fanny was less than enthusiastic. Stevenson was furious. He got left on his own, uh, sitting up in bed in high dudgeon, having been told by his wife that, you know, he, he'd spoiled the story by not writing it as an allegory. It was too explicit. And uh, a little bit later, apparently, there was he rang the bell by the side of his bed. He got summoned in. He pointed to the fireplace and there's just a pile of ashes in it. He'd burnt the manuscript. And he then uh, got back into bed and spent another three days writing it all over again. Another 30 thousand words 33,000 words whatever and that's the version that we have today all this while still yeah uh, but Catherine was there at the time and uh she'd also just saved his life when he was having these hemorrhages in the hotel when they'd been to see Hardy so she was very close to him when he when he wrote the book and she stayed close to him and he tried to teach her to write um, she was able to write well enough to um, write journalism, book reviews and art reviews for the Athenaeum, which was a very big posh magazine that paid extremely well. So she was able to support herself and her, her daughter and her son. When Stevenson came back from the States with Fanny Osborne, um, Fanny Osborne at first wanted Catherine to be her bestest friend. She thought she was absolutely wonderful. You know, they were great girls together. They both had literary ambitions. Fanny was convinced that she was, you know, going to be a great author. And Catherine was sort of doing her best to write anyway. And uh, at Bournemouth, they, uh, Catherine had got this story that she'd written through the Red Litten windows. No, actually, that was the one that she wrote later. She'd, no, I beg your pardon. She'd written one about a water sprite. A girl who'd escaped, young girl had escaped from some kind of orphanage or lunatic asylum. And uh, who meets a young man on a train. All kinds of weird things happen. And she read it out rather shyly. I think Stevenson and his wife thought it was quite good. And Fanny, knowing her, would immediately have jumped in and said, well, you could do with this, this with it, or you could do that with it. But Catherine said, no, I'm trying to get it published. And Henley, who was Stevenson's sort of unpaid best friend and uh, literary agent at the time, said, I'll try and place it somewhere. And he went round every single editor he could find and couldn't get this damn thing published. And so it just sort of sat there in the drawer until they sort of remembered it one night. And Fanny said to Catherine, well, if you can't get it published, would you mind if I took the story, if I took the idea, and if I, if I sort of rewrote it a bit, and, uh, and, and I'll try. 
And unfortunately, Catherine, being a well-brought-up Edinburgh girl, didn't just come out straight like an American would and say, take your hands off it, you know, push, push off, or worse to that effect, you know, it's, it's my story. She said, well, uh, I don't know, perhaps, you know, this kind of thing, which anybody who knew Edinburgh would have known meant no, um, but Fanny didn't uh, see that, and she was determined to to write something. And the trouble was that she didn't actually write it or get it published until she and Stevenson had disappeared off to the States. Mm. And this was when they were staying in Saranac in New York State, up in a, a wee cottage in minus however many degrees below zero in the winter, and they were sort of burning huge log fires and writing there. Stevenson had a, a, a contract to... Um, send essays to one of the big literary magazines. He was making a fortune and copies of this would be sent back to England as well. It was, it was an international magazine, you could, you could buy the UK edition as well. And not only were there Stevenson's essays in it, but suddenly this story called The Nixie appeared by Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson. No guesses for finding out how she managed to get it published. <laughs> and Henley sees this and realizes that it's Catherine's story. The bulk of it was still Catherine's. You know, it, it had been tweaked a bit here and there, but it was Catherine's story. And he wrote to Lewis saying, this is Catherine's story. I'm amazed. I'm sure this is Catherine's story, isn't it? And why at least there wasn't a double byline puzzles me, because if there was a double byline, Catherine would have got half the money. Henny was pretty depressed at the time. He was going through a bad patch. So he, he was a bit bitter as well. He found Stevenson's financial success hard to take um, because although he sort of loved him as a person, you, you couldn't help but feel envious when you were making sort of a small amount. You were struggling to to get work as a, as a journalist, and your pal was earning God knows how much, you know, mega bestseller type money in the states. Anyhow, this letter Stevenson immediately took as him accusing Fanny of plagiarism. He could get on his high horse very easily. He just went ballistic and wrote back saying, if I don't have an immediate apology from you, that's the end of our friendship. The whole thing got worse and worse and worse. Catherine got dragged into it, because although it was Henley who had said the offensive things, Catherine hadn't said anything at all. She was being asked to sort of retract and to say that, you know, it wasn't her story or whatever. And all she would say was, you know, I'm, well, I'm very sorry that it's caused all this unpleasantness, really, you know, I don't mind at all. But that wasn't good enough for Stevenson. He wanted her to, to say, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a stolen story at all. And when Catherine wouldn't do that, he sent her a really nasty letter. It was the, the nastiest letter I've ever seen in the whole collection. Really? Yeah. Uh, I, I quote it in the book, um, the, the whole passage in full. Mm. But if you see the passage in Jekyll and Hyde where Sir Denver's Carew, the MP, gets battered to death by Hyde, and it yeah. really is vicious, violent stuff. He's getting battered to death so hard that his head bounces off the pavement. You know, it's ultra-violent. Stevenson gives his cousin the equivalent of a verbal doing in the letter. It's take that and that, take that and that, take that and that, all the way through. It's really vicious. And, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know if you don't come to your knees, uh, you know, asking forgiveness and all the rest, that's the end of it, I fear. We'll never speak to each other again. All this kind of stuff. And... Stevenson was incredibly charming and he was a lovely man and he could be very kind and he could be very generous. But when he went off on one, he was hell on legs. He would, he would completely lose the plot. And sadly, he did that with Catherine and it was mm. very sad that that, that that happened. But really, I mean, my reason for doing that book was in, in some ways I thought it would be a lot easier, easier book to do than a, you know, a huge, enormous biography. And also I got quite fond of Catherine and yeah. I wanted some of her work to actually be published. And we couldn't publish the story that she allegedly, well, that Fanny allegedly stole from her because Catherine's version hasn't survived. But she did write a couple of short stories that she got published in 1892 in a, a very small volume, Through the Red Litten Windows, mm. which is in some ways very like Jekyll and Hyde. It's about sort of one person taking over the body of another person. Yeah. It was written at a similar time. We don't know when it was written, but it's quite possible that its genesis was. The easiest thing to say is that she saw how hugely successful Jekyll and Hyde was. So she thought she would try and write a story like that to see if she could mm. be successful as well. The other 
explanation is bearing in mind that she could go for years and years and years with a manuscript and a draw that she couldn't get published was that she was writing it at the same time as Stevenson was writing at Jekyll and Hyde. And maybe even, I don't know if he, he ever saw bits of it or whether they discussed it or whether what she was doing in, in her short story rubbed off on him. So she might actually have helped influence Jekyll and Hyde, have, uh, you know, have helped create it rather than try and copy it later. We don't know because we don't know when she wrote it. It's strikingly similar in theme and, and, and story as well. That one line jumped out was this character who's, it's not quite the same as Jekyll and Hyde. It's more like he, he takes on a, a spirit of another person as opposed to another side of his own personality. It's a weak young man who gets possessed by the spirit of this other mm. character, whoever he is. Yeah. Which is, is very ghoulish. But he says at one point... Was I really to see my own face dwindle before my eyes to make way for those other unknown lineaments? Which yeah. is not just straight out of Jekyll and Hyde, but made me think of the the line attributed to Stevenson wh when he died. Uh, I, I can't actually quite remember what he exactly says, but something along the lines of... Why well, look strange? Yeah, it's my face, face strange. Yeah. It, it had a stroke, so it may have affected his face muscles. But yes, do I look strange? Yeah, very spooky. The last thing really. he said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's uh, one fascinating part of the book was the asymmetry, I guess, between uh, Fanny and and Catherine. Hmm. The both, as you say, both both literary, both writers, one of whom shares clearly the taste interests with Robert Louis Stevenson. Hmm. Um, Catherine l liking these gothic stories, and also really feels uncomfortable about trying to cash in on the family name. And then Fanny, on the other hand, who disapproves of the, the ghoulish and the, the more lurid aspects of Stevenson's writing and not, does... Not the ghoulish. She, um, she wrote horror stories as well. They, they, they loved writing horror stories together. They, they, they called them crawlers because it made yeah. them crawl when you, you read them. No, no, she, she, she was worried about the indecency. Anything mm. that would be regarded as uh, the, the Victorian society would frown on. The one thing she was terrified about, her husband, who she divorced... Uh, disappeared mm. with, I don't know if it was his secretary or, or, or whatever, Some I think somebody who worked, he, he'd been having an affair with, and he just disappeared. Uh, no, he, dis he didn't disappear with her. No, he'd, he'd been having an affair with her, one of the many affairs after he had got divorced. And then he vanished, and this poor woman was left. He, he, he'd gone out saying he'd gone to the court one night uh, because he was a stenographer, a court stenographer, and he never returned. Apparently on a beach nearby, some clothes were found that might have been his. Uh, the theory was that he'd gone swimming and drowned, or that he'd done a Reggie Perrin or a John Stonehouse and had uh, gone in at California and emerged somewhere else. And actually, I, I think I mentioned it in the book, but a few years later, uh, a journalist who had seen him every day in the courts in San Francisco happened to be in South Africa and bumped into him there and said, hello, Sam. And Sam Osborne pretended not to be Sam Osborne, completely denied who he was and had this bizarre <laughs> experience in South Africa. Whereupon the journalist just said, all right, Sam, you know, I can see you don't want to acknowledge me. If that's the way you want to play it, that's fine. But when he disappeared, um, there was stuff in the newspapers. And I think some of the stuff in the newspapers even got over to, to Britain. And Fanny was terrified that because this was her ex-husband, this was all highly irregular and unseemly. Mm. And if, it, if people put two and two together and uh, discovered that the, the first husband of Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson had disappeared in these unsalubrious circumstances and that his mistress was going around distraught wondering where he was and all the rest, this was going to wreck his reputation as a children's author. Mm. And this was why his son, who had always been Sam Osborne after his father or Sammy as he was known, at that stage, he deliberately changed his name to Lloyd Osborne. He used his middle name thereafter to try and distance himself from his father, um, whom he had actually idolised when, you know, he sort of knew him in the flesh. But no, it was uh, anything that Victorian society would have frowned upon. But no, the, the ghouls and the horror, the Victorians loved it. And that, that was all right to like that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I was amazed towards the end of the book, you mention that Catherine de Matos not only has a connection, obviously, to the author of Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde, but also the author of Frankenstein and the author of uh, Dracula as well. Yes, amazing coincidence. 
one of one of Stevenson's friends who used to visit him, and he, they they could go out and visit uh, the, the other way as well because he, uh, he didn't live too far away, was Sir mm. Percy Shelley, who was the son of the Romantic poet and, of course, of Mary Shelley. So uh, this was sort of literary greatness at one stage removed. And Sir Percy was actually sort of a you know a, a nice jolly, I don't know about not particularly bright, but very sort of affable, but not particularly sort of high powered aristocratic gent. Who, who lived in a, a sort of a stately home just outside Bournemouth. And they would invite the Stevensons out to see them, or they would go and see the Stevensons in at the, the cottage in Bournemouth or the house in Bournemouth. So Stevenson became very panny with the son of Mary Shelley and the poet as well, Percy Bish. So uh, that was quite interesting. And Catherine got to meet him. So Catherine met Sir Percy Shelley and, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the Frankenstein thing sort of managed mm. to bob off like that. But then she lived in London in Chelsea. And again, by complete coincidence, her next door neighbour was Bram Stoker. And uh, literally through the wall, uh, you know, Catherine could be sitting there, you know, having breakfast or whatever. In the other room, looking out over the garden, Bram Stoker was sitting writing Dracula. So <laughs> it, was, it was bizarre. That's a, it's an extraordinary claim to literary literary fame yeah she also knew hg wells yeah um, a little bit of her her story the uh, the, the, labo- the laboratory bit um in her through the red litten windows where all these sort of scientists are huddled around this lifeless figure in a chair mm. and they're they're sort of putting in injections and they're pointing a sort of a thing like a laser beam at him and, the, and you know there's an explosion and then he disappears. And if you read The Time Machine or something like that, it's, it, it's very similar. And again, the fascinating thing is, did she copy that from H.G. Wells or did H.G. Wells copy that from her? Yeah. Because again, we, if, when we don't know the authorship of when she wrote her story, it could have predated or antedated. Yeah. Another interesting um, thing about her is when Stevenson was in France, supposedly alone and writing uh, is it travels with a donkey that he's writing she was completely there was absolutely no mention of her in the book Mm. absolutely no mention of her in any of stevenson's surviving letters when he was out there and the only reason that we know that she was in france with him was in 1922 a book came out a collection of Memories of Stevenson, the Robert Louis Stevenson Club commissioned it because they realised there were all these people still alive who'd known Stevenson and if they, their memories weren't extracted from them now, they were all going to be dead. And so this collection got put together and Catherine got asked to write something and her contribution is quite short and quite guarded, bearing in mind that A, she'd been very close emotionally to her cousin, B, there'd been this horrible falling out um, over the allegedly stolen story. But she just mentioned it as a throwaway line that uh, later in France, I traveled, I traveled with him and my little daughter. And this was when she'd run away from her unfaithful husband and she'd left her baby son, Richard, behind, which is a hell of a thing to do, but she couldn't take him with her. And so Richard had been left behind in the care of a nurse and she had just run away to France with her little daughter, Helen, who was known as Snooty because she wore a, a little hairnet like a snood. And uh, Stevenson was their protector. And because he was, he was in Paris and then he was traveling around, they went with him. And certainly as far as Le Monastier in, uh, in the Cévennes Mountains. And I don't know what happened after that. I think she probably would have found her way back to Paris at least on her own after that, because I don't think she would have been with him on the donkey. Mm. But she was there at the start. And this was hugely scandalous. Uh, and there's a letter or two of Stevenson's to his lawyer friend, Charles Baxter sort of in confidence when he got back. And uh, Catherine's husband, whom she hadn't, well, she never actually did divorce him. She got a legal separation later. He was going crazy because his wife had disappeared off to France with Stevenson. He had actually got detectives um, or sort of legal clerks trying to find, dig up information that he could use against her if there was any sort of legal arguments about property or about um, if it did come to a divorce or anything like that. So he had people sniffing around. Stevenson wrote in a letter to his mother, uh, you know, I am not here. I am not in London. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not here. You know, he was, he was in complete hiding. And another letter to um, Charles Baxter, his lawyer, saying the same thing. And he was actually in hiding because he didn't want to be cited in a divorce, which would have been hugely scandalous and embarrassing for the family. 
and not very good for his literary reputation either. No. So, is it? I I remember Robert Louis Stevenson. Is that the anthology? That's the name of the yes, the collection of stories. Yeah, uh, memories rather. Yeah. yeah, you you mentioned a couple of them, and that that Catherine's response is, as you say, a little bit guarded. Slightly corny question, but I I couldn't help thinking at the time if if there was one thing you wish she'd have been asked because it, it seems like hearing that you know she she lived until about 1939. And then this mm-hmm. this was the last moment she sort of made public comment about their friend, their relationship mm. and everything. If there mm. was one thing you just wish she she said uh, or was asked, what 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 would it be? Well, I don't think did you love him because I think that's pretty clear mm. from all the clues that you get. There was a rumor that, uh, and again, this is probably a, a silly rumor, but it was within the the family that uh, at one point Stevenson had wanted to marry her. Oh, really? And that the family had forbidden it because they didn't want cousins to marry or something. So I would have asked her, you know, were the two of you in love? And uh, did you hope to marry Mm. at one point? Catherine was in a hell of a situation because Fanny was wanting to be her best friend. And here he is, you know, the the man that she had loved since she was a, a, you know, a teenager had returned from the States with a wife, fait accompli, so that was never going to happen. I think up until then, she was still hoping that somehow if she could get rid of her first husband, that she and Lewis might have had some kind of a, you know, a future together. But of course, Fanny comes back, they're married. It's obviously not going to happen. And to make matters worse, Fanny wants to be her best friend. Very awkward situation. And it remained awkward. And you can see why there was this horrible bust up later. Yeah. So I suppose I'd ask that if I was allowed a second question. Um, it, 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 it would be, when did you write through the Reddit and Windows? Mm. How, how, how much did you, how much credit should you take for Jekyll and Hyde? Um, and was that why it got dedicated to you? Yeah. Um, the the um, other thing I wanted to ask you about, which is uh, a running thing throughout the book, is I, uh, midway through, I, I started to think like that the entire world is just begging Robert Louis Stevenson to write Jekyll and Hyde. He seems to be surrounded by... Jekyll and Hyde figures <laughs> almost yes. on, on every yeah. level like he's, he's uh, his friends murderers that he comes comes across yeah. uh stories of Deacon Brodie as a child yeah every, everybody sort of quotes Deacon Brodie as the inspiration for Jekyll and Hyde I think that's probably a bit too easy yes he was yes he was fascinated by Deacon Brodie and he and his pal Henley tried well he did write a play about Deacon Brodie that wasn't hugely successful mm. so yeah he, he was fascinated by the Deacon Brodie story uh, but Deacon Brody wasn't really sort of two people within one body. He was just he was just a respectable Edinburgh citizen who went out ca- carrying out burglaries for kicks mm. because he was bored with his respectable life. Um, I, I suspect Deacon Brody was bipolar. You know, he uh, you know he 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 needed to sort of you know have excitement, have have a wild crazy time every now and then because the rest of the time he had to be respectable. But he wasn't a psychopath. Um, like Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde are, are sort of really a psychopath. So uh, the, the, the one influence that nobody seems to have come up with, and it's in Stevenson's uh, a little start of an autobiography that he, he, he wrote when he was in the States when he was ill and didn't know how much longer he was going to live. He mentioned some of the various people that he had known in Edinburgh, and they included three people who worked as French teachers or French tutors they were French nationals. And of course, they would be very handy for him when he was in Edinburgh because he could keep up his conversational French. He spent lots of time in his 20s in France, in Paris and Fontainebleau. Um, but then he'd be back in Edinburgh. And uh, so he'd, he'd meet up with these people quite often in the pub and they would sit and probably chatter away in French. And, uh, you know, he could, he could keep his, his, his spoken French up like that. And he knew through this sort of meeting people in pubs a chap called Eugene Chantrel, and uh, who was working as a French teacher. Stevenson had no idea that this guy was a, a rapist and mass murderer. Nobody knew at the time. And he was married with a couple of kids. Uh, the girl, the, the one, woman he was married to, he had actually seduced at Newington Academy when he was her French teacher. And unlike some of the previous escapades he'd had, Um, with young ladies. This time her family cut up rough, so he ended up having to marry her very reluctantly. There's a picture of their wedding day, and you've never seen two more unhappy-looking people in your life. Uh, You know, it was was a shotgun wedding. Later on, to everybody's horror, it emerged that Chantrell had murdered his wife. 
and it was on at New Year. She had uh, gone out to get stuff for the New Year's meal in the evening and had fallen ill and it got worse and worse and worse and eventually uh, lost consciousness and died. It was a bit suspicious. The police had to investigate. And Chantrelle gave them this big, long cock and bull story about uh, she'd been poisoned by a gas leak and he showed this gas pipe that was a bit broken or had been tampered with. And he thought, you know, they'd been having trouble with the gas leak. And he'd obviously been fiddling around with this to make it look like a gas leak. It wasn't very convincing. But they couldn't actually pin the murder on him. Allegedly, uh, Joseph Bell, the medical professor who was a friend of Stevenson's and who also became the original for Sherlock Holmes yeah. because Alan Doyle knew Joseph Bell as well. But Joseph Bell got involved and he went back over the evidence and discovered uh, Chantrell's wife's nightdress, which he had neglected to dispose of or even launder. And so this was sent away for examination because she'd been sick on it when she wasn't well. And there's massive quantities of opium in the vomit. And it was clear that Chantrell, who had also been buying opium, um, because he was a, a sort of a failed doctor who still treated people on an unqualified basis, but he had heaps of opium and he had poisoned her with it. But it came out at his trial that this was, you know, there were, there were all kinds of other unproved deaths in his wake. He had, you know, he'd allegedly bumped off a whole lot of other people that they'd never actually been able to prove. He'd raped this poor girl in Edinburgh um, when she'd come for an interview um, to be a housekeeper. This was before he got married. And on New Year's Day, she'd come to the flat. He'd let her in. And in the middle of the interview, he just threw her on the floor and raped her. And there was this pitiful letter, which still survives, um, from her writing to him saying that she was pregnant. What on earth was she going to do? You know, he would have to help her. And he did absolutely nothing. I think this, this was among the, the evidence. You see, the, Stevenson, being a, a qualified advocate, he attended Chantrell's trial because he'd known Chantrell. He was astonished that, you know, this person that he'd known was up being tried for murder. But he got speaking to the prosecution team because he knew all these other lawyers. And they showed him all the stuff that couldn't be led as evidence and told him, you know, all the background to Chantrell, you know, you know what he was really like, which Stevenson was stunned at. I mean, it, absolute utter disbelief, which is how the world saw Jekyll and Hyde, utter disbelief that Jekyll and Hyde were the same person. Yeah. Because this had never been done before. And people were horrified when they discovered this. Nowadays, of course, everybody knows Jekyll and Hyde as an expression. So we're all sort of, you know, quite comfortable with the two people living in one body. But no, I mean, Edward was shocked. Chantrell was a grade A psychopath to the two people living in one body and absolutely... Uh, you know, the, the one of them had absolutely no qualms whatsoever doing anything. Mm. He'd taken out an insurance policy on his wife's life, so he was going to bump her off and claim the money. Um, but no, he got hanged. And if you're wanting sort of a psychopath, a really bad guy, uh, a bizarre person, two people living inside one body and stunning everybody, because Stevenson said in his little autobiographical bit that he'd never regarded as Sean Trellis anything other than a, you know, a perfectly fine family man. Mm. That, to me, is a far, far, far closer inspiration for Jekyll and Hyde than Deacon Brody or, you know, whatever. So that's the, that's, the, that's the one Jekyll and Hyde that I wanted to explore in the book because other people hadn't done it. And the other one, of course, was Paul Walter Ferrier. Yeah, I was going to ask you about him as well. The, the, the thing that transformed him was not opium or some cooked-up potion. It was drink. And he was a completely different person drunk than he was sober. He was kind. He was clever. He was, he was literary as well. I mean, he, he managed to write a novel, um, as to say, in the book. And, but when he was drunk, he was this dribbling, boorish, awful, nasty, bitter person. The other thing that, that Stevenson mentioned about him was that uh, when, when Ferrier was an invalid in Edinburgh towards the end of his life, he used to love to be taken out in the family carriage at night. And he would ask to be driven round and round and round the shops because he loved to see it when the pharmacies came by. And the pharmacies in those days had these big sort of glass bottles in the window with different colored liquids in them so to, to advertise the fact that it was a pharmacy. And these would all be gleaming in the gaslight. And so, you know, Hyde's funny colored potions mm. were all funny colored potions that... Uh, that poor old Walter Ferrier used to love, love to go and see. It was like a, like a light show in Edinburgh at night. You drive round and round and round, looking at the pharmacies. Oh, look at the pretty bottles. 
And of course, the pretty bottle of his one was the amber-colored liquid that was his ruin that killed him at 33. So, but no, Ferrier was another Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, it's a, it comes at a horrible, the, the, the horrible whole story of, of, of Chantrell. But um, I have to say, I, I laughed out loud at the, the, just the, the line about Chantrell being hanged. Uh, and you say, you know, he had his he had his last breakfast of eggs or whatever, but mm-hmm. his request for his request for three bottles of champagne and a whore was turned down. I think that was very mean of them. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point of giving a, a last man his dying request if you request something and you then don't give it to him? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he wasn't requesting a revolver to shoot the hangman or anything like that. It was, no. You know... No. And with his track record, what could have gone wrong? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there was also, I mean, this does sort of cross over with, with Walter Ferrier because you, you, you describe how shocked Stevenson is with, with how kind of bloated and physically transformed he is as well as, yes. as mentally. Yeah. But he, he also seems, I mean, n- never mind Robert Louis Stevenson's own body, but I didn't quite realise how surrounded by similarly debilitated people going through illnesses where they, they, they really are physically declining quite dramatically around him, like his uncle, for example. Um, yes. And the secret shame was syphilis. I think it's quite possible that Catherine's father, or Catherine and Bob's father, who was paralysed for several years before he died, and also um, was not entirely sane when he died either. He, he, he had sort of delusions of, of grandeur, r- religious mania and all the rest. Yeah, um, It's quite possible that he died of syphilis. And his brothers, who took over his responsibilities with, you know, Nighthouse building, always referred to him as poor Alan and re- regarded him as sort of the unstable, unreliable side of the family. And cousin Bob even more so. I mean, I think they, 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 they were convinced that Bob was insane. Well, you know. Um, but yes, the, the, uh, he may have had syphilis. St- Stevenson himself as well, I'm pretty sure had it. Really? There's there's letters that he that he writes private letters to his friend Charles Baxter, which Baxter, being a lawyer, of course, kept. He, if he'd been an honourable person, he would have burnt them. But no, the the letters survive. Yes, the 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 the, the other thing that you know that that crop up quite regularly are people who struggled with disapproving Victorian Edinburgh. Mm. You know, the whole attitude epitomised by Mrs Grundy. You know, don't frighten the horses. Don't do anything unrespectable, don't do anything in the slightest bit sexual. And Walter Simpson, who, again, had a lot on his shoulders, he was son and heir of a famous great man uh, with a hereditary baronetcy and all all the rest. He had an affair with this young girl called Anne Fitzgerald Mackay. I think it started when she was about 15 or something like that, so she was very young. It was completely hidden from the family. They had no idea that it was going on, uh, even when she had an illegitimate daughter. And uh, so she was just his secret girlfriend, if you like. There was a big question about whether Simpson actually married her or not. Mm. And Stevenson actually testified that there had been a common law marriage, a Scots marriage, um, which was basically just somebody saying, I take you to be my husband, I take you to be my wife, in the presence of witnesses. And that would be it. You didn't have to have lawyers or clergymen or their presence. And he claimed that there had been a Scotch marriage although later Simpson ratified it and had a, a proper marriage as well. But uh, this, this poor secret daughter of his, Flo, was, couldn't really see him or could only see him occasionally. And when she did, they had to sort of explain that she was a niece or a something or other. They couldn't say who she was. And then eventually, when he'd married his bridey in, who had now at last become respectable, she was Lady Simpson. And she had the respectability that she craved and, you know, respectable Edinburgh society, you know, they'd be invited out to dinner and they'd take social callers and things like this. The sort of the high point for her of actually being sort of reinstated or, or whatever was to be presented to Queen Victoria. And she got presented to Queen Victoria along with her daughter, Flo Fitzgerald, who, again, I think was, a, was introduced as her niece. And one of Simpson's rotten, disapproving, God-fearing relatives actually wrote to the Lord Chamberlain saying, do you know that the Queen met the illegitimate daughter of this woman? And it's hugely scandalous. As a result of this, the presentation to Queen Victoria was struck from the record. And Stevenson was actually away, I think, in Samoa, certainly abroad at the time. And he was told all this by Charles Baxter, his friend, in a letter. And he went absolutely ballistic. You know, how 
mean and petty and mm. rotten, was it? And after that, Simpson's wife couldn't show her face in Edinburgh again, and he couldn't show his face in Edinburgh again. And they went to go and live down at Great, Great Ayton, down in the borders, almost on the English border, um, and spent the rest of their time down there. They had to sort of live in, uh, in quiet seclusion wow. because they'd been unmasked as unrespectable people. And even though he was married to her and she was Lady Simpson, the fact that they had cohabited beforehand and the fact that when their daughter was born, she was illegitimate. This was, this is what I mean by Mrs. Grundy. This is, this is what people were up against all the time. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to think freely, behave freely, anything like that. Easy to see how double lives um, start yeah. off. Yeah. yeah. Now, the, the, really, the, the, the reason for Mrs. Jekyll and Cousin Hyde was I wanted to give Catherine her place. Mm. And it's it really started off, um, I wanted to publish her two short stories because they hadn't been published since 1892 and they were published under a male pseudonym. Mm. So nobody actually knew that they were by her or by the cousin of Robert Louis Stevenson and they just vanished really. And so I wanted to give her her place as far as, you know, what she did right. And also point out that uh, that she may have had more influence than we thought on Jekyll and Hyde. And really, it started off that the, all, the, all the information around it, I was going to do a big, long sort of introduction telling the story, but then I thought that's kind of boring and some people skip introductions anyway. So I told it as a story with her work slotted into it. Mm. So it's really a sort of hybrid book of, of me and Catherine together. But it, it tells you a lot more about her and it gives her her place in, in the life of Stevenson and in the sort of literary life at the time which had been lacking from the other biographies. So that's my, that's my little achievement, if you like. Well, <laughs> one thing we should add is where you can get it. And, um... Well, it's, it, it, it's, it's less than a bestseller. It's not doing uh, big business like Treasure Island, I'm afraid. One can buy it online, although, of course, I would prefer you to buy it from Typewronger Books. Typewronger Books is uh, where I got mine, yeah. Yes, where you, where you, will, get the, uh, you will get the front stamped by Tom. <laughs> And if you're lucky, you might even get one that I've scribbled my name in. They're worth less than the ones that I haven't scribbled my name. <laughs> I've always wanted to be available in bad bookshops anywhere, everywhere. I always thought they'd be much more fun. It's always good books. I, I thought, you know, who wants to be in a good bookshop? I want to be in a bad bookshop. <laughs> the most disreputable, uh, <laughs> ill-advised bookshops. And that's all we've got for today, I'm afraid. Huge thank you once again to Jeremy Hodges for coming on the podcast. There are links in the episode description box below to read Lamplit, Vicious Fairyland and to purchase Mrs. Jekyll and Cousin Hyde. I've also left a link to Typewronger Books, who I'm sure will be able to furnish you with a copy. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, happy reading. 